These are fun, off-the-cuff discussions on movies and streaming series, both new and old. Together, we'll attempt to bridge the gap between Hollywood Industry Insider and the casual viewer. This is Alec. And I'm Ben. And you're listening to the Cinema A to B Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Cinema A to B. Today, we are going to talk about the 2000 Ridley Scott film, Gladiator, which I know is a personal favorite both for myself and for Ben. So, Ben, we've seen this movie dozens of times, just the, you and I together, and we've, I'm sure, seen it dozens of times by ourselves or with other people as well. So, let's revisit this. So, obviously, this movie's f- firmly in my top 10. I mean, firmly. And why it's not number one, I don't, I don't know. I just can't quite get it up there, but it probably deserves to be. I mean, I, and I know I've got a lot of friends. This is their number one film and it's completely justified. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing. I think I took how great this movie is for granted when I saw it. And let me explain. I saw it in the theater with my dad, um, in high school. Uh, I think it was a summer release or a May release Mm. or something like that. And we were both utterly blown away. And I think we went to see it at least one or two more times in the theater. And we knew it was fantastic. And then obviously the following year, it it just freaking crushes it at the Oscars, the Academy Awards. Yeah. Like 12 nominations, five wins. Fantastic. Yeah. But I got spoiled, right? Because I thought, oh, I'll see something like this this good again. Right? 23 years later, no, I haven't. Like in, in this style, this, this mm. sword and sandal historical kind of epic. Nope. No. No. This is the peak. No, and, and, and even Ridley Scott tried to do it again with Kingdom of Heaven, and he, and he couldn't quite get there. I was, I was spoiled into thinking that, oh, this is great, but these, these come out every so often. No. Well, and even comparing it to the stuff that came before it, it's leaps and bounds above many of the things that, you know, kind of paved the way. Like, you know, I love Spartacus, but I'll take Gladiator for Spartacus, you know, which I know is sacrilege to a lot of people. Well, but, no, I mean, it's it's a different era. It's a completely different style of filmmaking. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, I guess if I want to know what were audiences' impressions, yeah, coming out of Spartacus or something like um, Ben-Hur. Mm-hmm. In the fifties, this is as close as I'm is in probably in my lifetime as I'm going to get. Like, and and another director could certainly come around and create something as good, or maybe I don't know, I'd be hard pressed to be better, but maybe maybe better in my in our lifetime. But I'm probably going to be seventy five years old before they do it. Mm-hmm. it. It it's that good. It's just this rare. It's rarefied air. It's even for even for his director as supremely gifted as Ridley Scott, it's rarefied air. These things just don't grow on trees. Movies of this magnitude just don't come around that often. Well, I think, you know, it was hard for us to kind of see it at the time. One, because it's always hard to kind of see that how the greatness of it and the moment sometimes. But we're also talking about a you know, three to four year period of some amazing films come out. I mean, 99 saw The Matrix come out. You know, we had 2001 was Lord of the Rings Fellowship, you know. So like you in 2001, you have Black Hawk Down. You know, you've got kind yeah. of these. I mean, you've had what Saving Private Ryan in 98. So like so like you have a lot of these fantastic, amazing movies that 
is fan, you know, great for the, that that time period, but it's also hard to be like realize just how great this is because you're like kind of you know desensitized to how amazing these movies are, and you're expecting this to go on and on, and obviously it didn't. That's it. That's yeah. You summed it up perfectly. Just the expectation that they can keep this level of quality churning through the studios. And yeah, you're right there with that window there was, and it's really interesting because it's completely distorted my sensibilities mm-hmm. because yeah, that's when, that's when I probably saw the highest volume of movies was probably starting in like 96, 97. Mm-hmm. And, and my dad and I would, and a huge shout out to my dad, uh, Jeff for just he loved movies. He always loved movies. And, and yeah, that window is really special for me um, in high school where he and I would just go see something constantly. I mean, just constantly. Like it, it felt like almost every weekend. It wasn't, but it, that's what it felt like. And we were, we were seeing stuff like Saving Private Ryan mm. and then Fight Club. And, and then, yeah, before I, um, it would probably been after I was close to graduation gladiator and we saw movies together after that you know i came i came home for christmas one year and we watched you know fellowship of the ring and we're blown away but gladiators really gladiator and saving private ryan are probably the two really special movies where we both came out of the theater just going wow wow and now funny thing with gladiator there's no reason it should be this good and you know the story, right? That they wrote the script, right? They wrote the screenplay. They hire Ridley Scott to direct. They've got Russell Crowe attached to star. Who had just done The Insider as like his main big movie a year before. So he he wasn't the big name actor that he, he was. Like he was still relatively unknown at this time. The, the biggest star going into this was Richard Harris as Marcus Aurelius, right? Like the rest of it's like... I mean, Joaquin Phoenix had done some stuff, but like he was relatively unknown. Yeah. And keep in mind, this is Russell Crowe's first like he is the true lead because obviously in The Insider, Al Pacino is there as well. So it's like he's not really that. I mean, then he was in L.A. Confidential before a couple of years, but wasn't, again, the main character. This is like his vehicle. Yes. So that yeah, that's that's reason a that this probably shouldn't be as successful and as good as it is. But the main thing is the screenplay. Because they write this huge screenplay, um, Franzoni does, mm-hmm. who, who, who created the story as well. And then Ridley Scott takes it, sees the potential of it, literally throws out everything except for 21 pages of script. <laughs> and they start shooting. Wait, without a finished? With 21 pages of script. <laughs> this should not have worked. <laughs> No, it shouldn't. This is not, folks, this is not how you make a movie. No. So Ridley Scott and another like couple writers and Russell Crowe are like huddled together every night, basically cobbling together the rest of the story. And they shoot it and create one of the greatest films of all time. The only other movie that I know is made in a similar manner that was just like a dumpster fire was Tombstone. Oh, which we'll have to revisit Tombstone because that's the one where effectively the movie was directed by Kurt Russell and nobody 
most people don't know that, but he, he did, he directed the movie. Um, he just didn't want his name attached to it, but this movie is, yeah. Throw. Oh yeah. We're going to start with 21 pages of screenplay <laughs> and then, and just kind of make it up as we go along. I think they had a beginning, a middle and an end. I think they knew where they wanted to go. And so that made things easier, but yeah, this, this is not how you make movies. And I don't, and that's not, that's not, I don't think that's standard procedure for, for Ridley Scott either. It's sort of a, you know, it was a, it was a rare thing to have happen, but it's wild. And I'm sure he kind of had it in his head, a lot of the things. And so it was just getting the dialogue down, some of the other stuff. Yeah. But you also had the issue too, that Oliver Reed, who plays Proximo dies as well during this year, you know? And so you had to change some things there. Yeah. So they had to bring in a stunt double. Yeah. You can tell they reuse, they reuse the shadows and dust, uh, footage and then kind of change the background before, mm-hmm. um, he stabbed. Yeah, and I, he was supposed to have a lot more dialogue yeah. and things going on in the final uh, in the final act. But you do what you have to do um, when you lose when you lose a key player like that. Well, so I was going to say the tidbit is is they actually had the insurance money. So obviously they insured the movie with an with the actor died during production. So they they were given like twenty five million dollars to reshoot all of Proximo's scenes. But like apparently Ridley Scott was like. No, I don't want to do that. Like I like Oliver Reed did such a great job of this performance. I'm just going to change the story and work around it because I can't see anyone in that else in that role. And I can't either. I mean, like he does such a fantastic job as that. Character. He is. He's amazing. He's amazing. And th- and that's the thing, right? So you get you get him and Richard Harris as the, these veter- veteran actors. And then and that Derek Jacoby as Gracchus is uh, mm-hmm. is like a old school actor, too. Yeah. Um, but everybody else is like relatively unknown, but you get, you just get high level performances from everybody. And you know, Russell Crowe gets all the love, but, um, obviously in retrospect, we can now say, you know, how great Joaquin Phoenix really, really was in this and, and is, it's just, it's a credit to an actor when you can hate him that much. And so much so that when he played in signs, I was, it was like, it took me a while to get over this to warm up to him. Cause I was like, I still had this residual heat hate of how terrible you are. Uh, but I mean, obviously the, the character, not the actor, but, uh. right. It is. It's just a, sh- it's a shame. I guess I can't get more of this stuff, but it's just, it's, it's exceedingly expensive to make these movies, mm-hmm. um, with all the, all the sets they've built. And yeah. any, anytime you do a period piece, it's just going to be super expensive. I do want to discuss a little bit briefly because it it just comes up a lot how much this film's compared with uh with Braveheart. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there was a there was like a 5-year window after this came out from like 2000 to 2005 where it felt pretty 50-50 amongst most viewers like on who preferred Braveheart and then who preferred Gladiator. Mhm. And and I don't know how much of it has to do with Mel Gibson and his issues, but it feels like the the debate has largely been settled that Gladiator is is not just the better movie; it's like sub- substantially the better movie. And I I tend to agree with that. I don't just be based on repeat viewings. I don't find myself going back to watch um, Braveheart very often. It's still a great movie, but I. Well, Gladiator's not a short movie. But it's Braveheart shorter than Braveheart. Is, it's shorter than Braveheart. And I think there is 
a little bit more buy-in. So like there's obviously character development in Braveheart and you see kind of William Wallace do his move, but it is a lot slower. And I think you could definitely trim Braveheart and come out with still the same quality movie where honestly, there's not a lot in Gladiator that I think you can take out without kind of changing some of that hero's journey or that kind of that those character moments of getting all the pieces together. There's not a lot of fat on this movie, which is I think great. Yeah. The other thing too, is I think just visually gladiator is just the, the sexier movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just is right. Ancient Rome. And you've got, um, especially that, I, my, my favorite scene is probably is still the, the fight with the, uh, yeah, the veteran gladiator Mm -hmm. who I believe that actor was, uh, one of, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger's, stunt doubles back in the oh, day yeah. and he's in uh he's for sure in conan the barbarian thorson or something yeah, like that. He's, yeah he's he's one of the big baddies one of thulsa doom's big baddies in yeah. uh conan the barbarian but i love that fight with him because of the you know all his chromed up steel the mask and it's just in the tigers and stuff it's just visually it's just visually more interesting braveheart's kind of an ugly movie not not the way it's shot it's beautifully shot but it, I mean, those battles just become mud pits and mm-hmm. which is realistic. Yeah. We, oh, yeah. Yeah. Except for the except for the face paint and the, <laughs> the rest. Of we will it, go but, into the, the Braveheart issues. So but <laughs> that's a different mo- podcast. But yeah, I think I think that's a lot of it is just visually gladiators more interesting, you know, traveling around just this mm-hmm. epic recreation of of ancient Rome. We won't get into the. Well, we can the historical nature of it. It's it's loose at best, but very because I mean, Maximus is an amalgamation of like four or five char- uh, four characters, four or five people, or whatever. Yeah, and um, then there's roughly. no right, and there's no evidence to suggest that Commodus killed his father either. No, well, supposedly uh, no. Uh, Aurelius died of the plague. I thought is didn't they rule at the same time for a little bit? Uh, I don't remember. That. I do know that Commodus came in. If I remember correctly, came in. He was like the everyone loved him. Like the public absolutely loved him. But then he got kind of wrapped up in his own amazingness as emperor. Like I think he changed the name of the coins to be called Commodus or or something based mm-hmm. off of his name until the yeah. people just went, okay, this is too much and. He got killed by a gladiator, um, narcissist or something like that. I think, if I remember correctly. Yeah. So that so him fighting in the arena was was accurate. Um, yes. And but I and I I appreciate the fact that gladiator never attempted to portray itself as history. Mm-hmm. Like that's not what it was. It, it was always this, you know, quasi mm-hmm. historical epic, and so it it doesn't suffer from those issues that I think we kind of pile on with, uh, with Braveheart. Braveheart. Yeah. I will say it's fun to also watch this movie. Cause this is, I think the movie where really Scott fell in love with Morocco of shooting movies in Morocco. Oh really? Like, I did not know that. I think this is his first one he did. Cause he sh- then did Blackhawk there mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Blackhawk down shot in Morocco. Yeah. So yeah. he, and supposedly he likes it. Yeah. I think opened up, uh, the country a little more to, to some other productions too. I don't, mm-hmm. Because there was, it seems like in in the following five years after that, that there's some other stuff I think I recall that was shot in Morocco. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, he did some Kingdom of Heaven shots in Morocco too. That makes sense. That makes sense. I, oh, not 100% by the way, my favorite, that. my favorite line about Morocco is from the movie Patton. 
With their, they're yeah. introduced. Yeah, Patton, he's, he's standing there and they're, they've got the Moroccan army doing a parade in front of him. And he's just like, oh, this is great, Morocco. It's like a combination of Hollywood <laughs> and the Bible. I love that Just movie. an aside. And we're going to do Patton. Oh, yeah. I love you can, Patton. You, you can't not do that, George C. Scott. No. Know, movie. The only thing that kind of dates it now are some of those flyover CGI re- renderings. Mm-hmm. Some of them look still good. There's kind of a, the first time you ever fly over Rome, it's it's like an overcast kind of gray day, mm-hmm. right? And so everything has almost a really, almost a black and white look to it. And you're coming through the clouds. It's a really cool shot. And I don't know if it's CGI and some model work. I don't know how much they did, but that that holds up. But some of the other flyovers that are in like full color of the Coliseum, things just don't yeah. look quite right. But I don't think they're going to bother to go back and revisit any of that. I mean, it. No. people don't. that love watching this movie don't watch it and then like, oh, that's taking me out of the movie. You know, it's, and those shots are pretty short, but. Yeah, there's not a lot of, I mean, there's not a lot of that bad CGI in this movie. And it's really those kind of establishing shots, flyovers that kind of you can see, but are just so short that you could be like, it's from 2000, you know, right. so but the battle there. sequence, the opening battle sequence is still incredible. Yeah. And, and the level of detail is really high because all of the, all of the tactics and methods are authentic based on what historians know about, uh, Roman warfare. Mm-hmm. So that's really that scene's still incredible. And then any of the other digital work was like uh, simple stuff, like them compositing shots so that the tigers are in the same frame as the, the actors like swiping, but you can't tell that. Right. And we've talked about, I've mentioned that on the podcast before. That's like my favorite simple effects work is, is just high end compositing work where you combine shots and. Yep. Well, cause he was never more than like, closer than 15 feet away from any of the tigers. And I think, well, I'd hope not. Yeah. So, well, well, supposedly trivia is, is that they actually had to go to the tigers into like doing the swiping and being angry because they'd been on set for so long that they just got used to all of the, you know, cameras and crew around that they were just kind of like relaxed. And they're just like, eh, they're going to, we're going to be fed. We're just going to be chilled. And so like, no, no, we need you to actually be angry. <laughs> that makes sense. Cause there is one scene during that fight where the, where the tiger is just like sitting there, just yeah. like laying on the, on the ground. It's not doing anything. It's like, yeah, yeah just got bored. Yeah. Just, just like this bored. is, Talk to my union rep. I'm not getting paid enough. So yeah, I wonder if let's say gladiator was never made in 2000 and it was made today and they went through the same process with the script and whatnot, but like visually, how would they shoot it? Like, would they, would they still be willing to build these extravagant, you know, these extravagant sets in Malta and stuff and, and then shoot in, you know, Morocco or, or would everything just, would they just recreate the Coliseum and that the uh, the virtual stage, the, the volume or whatever that, that yeah, Disney I th- uses? Um, <sighs> I, so I mean, either that or you do a lot of green screen and non sound stages in like New Mexico or other other places. I mean, which is the answer I thought I would get right, and that's kind of where I was. That was where I was headed, and the reason I bring it up is this movie was made at the exact right time. Mm-hmm when they were still willing to get as much in camera as they could get without green screening it heavily and without doing the, yeah. 
obviously the virtual stage wasn't even, was just a, probably a figment in somebody's imagination, <laughs> but yeah, the, a lot of these movies is a kind of a credit to when they were, were made with the, and this is, this is my favorite era visually probably of, is the early late nineties, early two thousands mm-hmm. when they would, they'd still get as much in camera as they could, but then they'd, they'd shoot a little bit of green screen. Yeah. A little bit of effects work. You know? Well, cause at this time, computer graphics were a lot more expensive than actually location shots, you know, cause it was still, you know, relatively new and now, yeah, now it's much easier. So changing topics. So kind of, remembering this this movie and stuff really scott does a lot of filter on his shot selection like he it's a very kind of when he's in like there's a big difference of the color tones and when he's in germania at the beginning as when he's like in the desert and then also in rome um so and it's pretty heavy and very noticeable even for someone who that's not you know my my wheelhouse at all so what are your thoughts do you feel like it was too heavy handed or did you feel like it really fit, you know, like really Scott actually did a decent job with that. I think it largely works. And now what's hard to get gauge here is this movie had one way it looked in theaters. Right. And then Mm -hmm. it has another way that it appears. The color grade appears when it went to DVD and DVD is probably where I've seen it the most. Mm -hmm. Um, I do have the Blu-ray now and I've seen it at least once or twice on Blu-ray, but the Blu-ray had another color grade. Hmm. So I, my guess is the color grades are stronger for each location in the Blu-ray remaster. Okay. Then, cause I, I don't recall in, in theaters, everything other than that kind of a gray, that grayed out version of Rome, when you first see Commodus kind of triumphantly returning mm-hmm. from Germania crowned as uh, emperor. Other than that scene, everything else had a pretty unified look like the, the color, the color temperature, like how warm stuff was pretty much like Africa when he first starts fighting that looked pretty much Rome looked the same way in the theatrical from what I recollect. And the DVD was true too. I think everything got pushed harder in the Blu-ray and I think they made, I think they made Africa warmer than Rome. And then, but oh, yeah. Germania was always pretty cold looking, but I think they blued it up even more for mm. the Blu-ray. And I, I understand it because you, you want the world to feel as big as it possibly can. And so you want these, these areas of the globe, cause it is a very different. expansive movie. And then you have Spain mm-hmm. as well, which has its own look, which is a way harsher looking space in the blu-ray than it used to be like all the shadows are really like Hmm. crushed like everything's really high contrast when he goes back to um to spain to find his wife and son crucified Mm -hmm. like it's it looks different than it used to look so okay and they've been doing this stuff like the heat blu-ray looks different than the dvd or the theatrical like the heat heat blu-ray is blue it's a bluer movie than it was in theaters Interesting. Okay. Yeah. yeah only, it is. And I need to rewatch that. It's then. a trend now when they, cause they, they do these full color session, remastered color sessions with the director and they get to pick kind of where to push and where pull things and stuff yeah. and tweak it. And so, yeah, they don't look quite the way they did in a, in a theater. 
And I don't know if this movie was digitally color corrected in 2000 or not, or if he just went the standard film processing. I have no idea. I don't know. Yeah. It, it was beautiful then. It's beautiful now. And the reason it's so good is because of the production design. Mm. The, the production designer had to have won an Oscar for this. The five Oscars were for Best Picture. Russell Crowe got a Best Actor Award. Did not win for Best Art Direction, Set Direction. Winner, let's see, they won for Best Costume Design. Maybe that's what I'm thinking. Best Effects, Visual Effects, they won for. But yeah, unfortunately, this, this Arthur Max did not win for Best Art Direction and Set Direction. Um, yeah. And there, he's uh, he's only been not he's been nominated three times: Gladiator, American Gangster, and The Martian. Never won. So yeah, I mean this is uh, this is Ridley's Ridley's guy yeah. for production design. Um, yeah, everything. Did a great job. Yeah. Oh yeah, he's he's used him since uh, GI Jane. So Gladiator, Black Hawk Down, Kingdom of Heaven, American Gangster. Yeah, the rest of them, Prometheus. From mm -hmm. Prometheus. So. He's going to be the production designer on Gladiator 2 and Napoleon. Oh, fun. The, the reason it looks so good, I use largely the costume and production design. I mean, the cinematography is fantastic, but once you get, when you get sets and costumes that look the way they do, there's no reason the image shouldn't just be spectacular. Yeah. 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 And then you back it up with an excellent story that was, I guess, put on, the, you know, cobbled together on the fly. You know, you get a great... A caveat, I think the bones for the story were sound in the script, but mm -hmm. there was some weird, from what I remember, there's some weird stuff in the original script that they just were like, oh, this Can't doesn't make any sense no. at all. So yeah, they had a place to go. They had a roadmap, but yeah, that's, it blow, It still blows my mind. Yeah. Just because both of us know how hard it is to make a movie, like just to make a movie. That you already have scripted out. Just Just to done. make one. Yeah. Is is such a feat, let alone to make a good one, let alone to make great one. Yeah. And then to do it in this manner, I'm I'm still flabbergasted that it it is the movie that it is, given mm. how they, they went about it. But Ridley Scott's one of the best. I mean, in my exactly. opinion, one of the best to ever do it. Yep. So kind of rewatching this, or at least the beginning parts of it, I laugh because I know I it's a big I like Hans Zimmer a lot. But this is so this this is so Hans Zimmer, this score, like he doesn't really change it up. Like I know, like in Black Hawk Down, he spent a lot of time to make it so it didn't sound like a Hans Zimmer movie. Yeah, this sounds like a Hans Zimmer movie so much so that he lifted parts from this uh, score and used him in Pirates. You know, like I'm listening to like the opening sequence, you know, in the battle scene. I'm like, wait, is this Pirates? why does this sound like pirates? And sure enough, nope. He just kind of like, he was like, I really like this and put it in pirates. So. Yeah. And he's, uh, he's evolved really yeah. well. Cause now he's doing, you know, he did Dune and Dune doesn't sound like a Hans Zimmer score. Well, and he did interstellar as well. And, and interstellar doesn't yeah. sound like a, yeah. Now he's not. <laughs> he made <laughs> just a Hans Zimmer tangent for a second. <laughs> he totally, he totally made Christopher Nolan mad. And like, I don't know if him and Nolan, I think they're still on friendly terms, but I don't know. If, I don't know that Hans Zimmer will ever score another Christopher Nolan picture. Really? What, what, what happened? I don't know this. Or are you just saying like, it's, I'm not, I'm, I don't want to make more out of this. I don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill. Cause that's not what this is. But there was a conflict when Nolan went to do what was Nolan's last movie. 
Tenet. Tenet, yes. Nolan wanted Hans Zimmer to score Tenet, and Hans had himself a decision to make. <laughs> do I score Tenet or do I score Dune? And he, and he picked Dune, and Nolan got a little, little hurt. Yeah, and had to um, had to go off in a different direction with with uh, who scored Tenet. And I like the score for Tenet, but um, yeah, apparently, like if you if you spurn Nolan once, like he's <laughs> he's not eager to like work with you again. So yeah, this uh, this Lud- Ludwig. Garanson uh, scored Tenet, and he also is going to score Oppenheimer. So, yeah. for all the fanboys out there, I don't think you're going to see Nolan a Nolan Zimmer matchup anytime soon. No, but tangent off of Ludwig, I mean, he also does a good job because he do, he did the Mandalorian music as well. So, like, he's yeah, this is the hot yeah. guy. Uh, yeah, this is the hot composer right now in Hollywood. Um, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, just a funny, a funny aside with, <laughs> with old Hans, and I love Hans Zimmer. But yeah, oh, yeah. He, he, I feel like it, I feel like he's evolved pretty well as far as uh, branching out with the way his stuff kind of sounds. Because there's there's a definitely in the like '90s and 2000s, it was re- it's sometimes very difficult to figure out which movie is this track from. As someone who like I love listening to, to movie soundtracks and put them on shuffle, it's like wait. Is this Pirates? Is this, you know, Gladiator? Is this Crimson Tide? You know, like, what no. is it? And, like, they all kind of blend together. Yeah, and, and Gladiator started that, um, I don't know the artist, but you have the you have the Hans Zimmer stuff, but then you also have that that female artist that's, mm-hmm. that sings as well. And he reused that in, uh, in more of that in Black Hawk Down. Yeah. I think it it works in both movies, but it was a nice carryover to to Black Hawk Down, and frankly, Dune kind of uses a little bit of that. Like it does, it sounds Dune yeah. sounds kind of similar. Um, I don't know if it's the same. I don't think it's the same artist, yeah. but so. I only got one more question for you. What's that? Are you not entertained? Oh, you are you not entertained? entertained? <laughs> I mean, some just great moments in this movie. No, yeah, but I love that. I love that other moment where Maximus is with uh, with Proximo, and he's like, "You knew Marcus Aurelius." He starts laughing at him, and he's like, "I didn't say I knew him. He touched me on the shoulder once." <laughs> yeah, this is a this is a universally beloved movie, and yeah. uh, it's twenty three years old, and it still holds up. And Very well. If if somebody's listening. I feel I feel pity upon you if you've not watched this, but there's still time. There's still time. Yeah, yeah. And we really haven't spoiled it at all, so you know, no, some some bits, but nah, no, no. I you don't have to. No, you don't have so, to talk about a film like this by deep and in, diving deep into the plot. No, and I will. So the only thing that I can think doesn't you can kind of cut is the opening scrawl where it talks about Rome and the battle. I mean, it, I don't think it really adds that much to it. I mean, it does give you some kind of context, but like you can get thrown but into this it. Is a, this is a Ridley Scott staple. He does it in, <laughs> he does it in Black Hawk Down. He's, he he's done Blade it. Runner? 
he's done his in Blade Runner. Like this is his thing. This little bit of uh, like a couple, like two short paragraphs or one short paragraph of uh, of like entry level text. Yeah, that's kind of his thing. It's kind of it's it's one of his monikers, and so okay. you know, it's kind of it's it's the way he likes to set things up with some uh, some print. Even though I like to say print is dead, but print is dead. Print but is he's dead. on film, so it's not truly dead. It's uh, not actually, no. you know. and film's not dead either, apparently. No. So, all right, I appreciate everybody catching yeah. us on another episode of Cinema A to B. Go see Gladiator again, or for the Do first it. time, it does not matter because it's so damn good. Russell Crowe at his best, at his best. Yeah, that and a beautiful mind. Yeah, yeah, Those, I mean, yeah, different performances, but yeah, Russell Crowe is. At his best. At he's still, yeah, he's still a really good actor. Um, but it's just, you get that window where you're the, you're the man on top and this is when it, it starts. It could him. last a few years. It could last a decade. It, yeah. So, so, and I guess we didn't talk about the fact that there's gonna be a gladiator too, but I, we'll just see what that's all about. I am reserving judgment and expectations for that. Much like Heat 2. I'm not excited for either. But we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. Get, we'll could the directors retread and do just as well. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. All right. Thanks for catching us. Um, leave us a review on the audio only podcast if you enjoyed it. If you didn't enjoy it, do not leave a review. No. <laughs> Please. Yeah. And then you can uh, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and, uh, and TikTok. And uh, yeah, we will catch you on uh, then another episode of uh, Cinema A to B. Thanks, everybody.